I like that metaphor of deflation, right? There's these large scale cascades that are going on all the time now. And decentralization is one of the means of building those down a bit, making them not so severe, not so large scale. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi everyone, Stina Heckele here, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast with Simone Cicero. Today we're having a boundaryless conversation with Joe Norman, a complex system scientist researching systemic risk and precaution in large-scale systems. Joe explores strategies for uncertainty, complex systems engineering, pattern formation in biological and social systems, among many, many other things. And we've been following Joe's work with keen interest because of the insights it can bring to creating new organizational development models that could be better equipped to deal with the asymmetric risk factors that we foresee these days in light of rising complexity of the human society and destabilization of its support systems. In this episode, we talk about decentralization and localism as a way to deflate such risks while changing the landscape of organizing and influencing its salience. Joe underlines the importance of tackling challenges at the appropriate scale, applying a multi-scale variety lens. Our conversation further points in the direction of systemic health embeddedness and the principle of subsidiarity and the precautionary principle as providing adequate constraints rather than directions for systems to evolve. Please don't forget that you can always find the show notes and transcripts of all our episodes on our media publication, stories.platformdesigntoolkit.com. Enjoy this show with Joe Norman. Hello, everyone. Tonight we are here with my usual co-host, Stina Heikila. Good evening, everyone. And uh, with us, we have Joe Norman. Hi. Hello, Joe. Nice to have you on the podcast. We are really looking forward to uh, to explore with you some of the very interesting topics you have been exploring and investigating in the last years, let's say. And uh, the first thing that I would love to start to discuss and explore with you based on your deep knowledge about complex systems is, uh, you know, it could be this uh, opening question, this idea that as we study organizations, one of the questions that I've been talking about uh, lately also with other guests is uh, to look into organizations uh, as living systems. So the mm-hmm. question is, to some extent, uh, an organization can be considered as a, as a living organism, and in case yes or not, why it shouldn't, and maybe also uh, what is the difference in, you know, from your point of view between a living system and a, and a more generally a complex system. So that could be our starting point. Okay, well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me and having me on. Thanks for the hospitality. Um, so I, to start with, maybe just worth kind of noting my, my perspective on complex systems um, and the kind of uh, questions um, that you ask when you, when you look at things in terms of a, a sort of a complexity lens. And that is when you think about the difference between kinds of systems, you think about their organization or their structure um, or the set of interactions that they embody um, more so than maybe what they're composed of. So, for instance, we know all organizations like the ones that you're discussing are composed of people, people and maybe technical systems as well. Um, Nevertheless, uh, two organizations that are both composed of people can be very different kinds of systems. So for me, I wouldn't so much ask, you know, are organizations living systems? Are they not living systems? It really depends on the kind of system, um, the, the, the structure that, and the processes that the organization embodies. Um, some systems are going to look much more mechanistic, and, and that's actually you know, coming out of the Industrial Revolution. Um, a lot of our metaphors about human systems are, are mechanical in nature, so we often think of human organizations as kind of embodying large machines, um, cranks turning and whatnot. You can almost imagine a uh, sort of Ford factory um, assembly line um, where, where the people are kind of interchangeable to one degree or another. There's a high degree of specialization. Um, so the people kind of become part of a machine, um, whereas other organizations might m- look much more like uh, living systems. So you asked, uh, you know, what is the difference between, say, a living system and maybe just a complex system or, or maybe a simple system? Um, you know, that's one of the most 
difficult um, questions in all of science and all of biology is what is it about a system that makes it a living one versus other kinds of systems? Um, so some, some, some promising themes around that question, I would say, uh, lead us to things like autopoiesis, which is, comes from the uh, sort of an activist line of, of cybernetics um, with, with Francisco Varela, Humberto Maturana. So autopoiesis um, is an attempt to, to define a, a system that sort of meets the minimal requirements for living this. Um, that is, it's not just a um, system that does things, that does processes, that has structure, but, but the processes that the system unfolds um, refreshes the structure of that same system. So um, the heart and the, the lungs work in tandem with the rest of the body to distribute nutrients, to get around the world, um, collect energy. Um, and in turn, what that all uh, ultimately manifests is the continuation of that very system, the rebuilding, the refreshing of the structure that um, made that activity possible in the first place. So, I mean, there, there is a kind of attempt at a minimal definition of, of a living system. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's sufficient, um, um, but it's it's a good try. And there's some related kinds of um, models from from like um, Robert Rosen, who, who looks at the problem in a, in a slightly different way, but comes to a similar conclusion looking at um, the way there's so much sort of causal structure within the living system that it has enough causal richness to generate itself and to maintain itself. Um, so in a human organization, what makes a living organization um, hard to say, even harder to say, because we exist within these systems. So we, there's no sort of vantage point from which to get outside of it and look at it the way we can uh, say, say, look at an individual animal as an organism. Nevertheless, um, some of the same principles about how the system unfolds in time uh, could be present and, and, and uh, of a living pattern. Um, for instance, sort of bottom-up development of, of structure and, and communication pathways and information flows. You know, do you, does a person come in and say, hey, I'm going to design all of these information flows uh, through the system. Here's who should be talking to who. Um, you know, that's sort of a top-down design schema. Or do those kind of interactions unfold from, from individuals or, or small teams um, sending out signals in some way or another, getting those signals and, and choosing to coordinate, choosing to link up, communicate, things like that. So, you know, I think it's a very big question. Um, so I'll kind of stop here with, with that as at least um, an introduction to, to how I might start thinking about that. But, but big question. Um, but I think what's important, the, the, the key takeaway from my perspective is that whether an organization is a living system or not depends on what you allow it to do and, and how it's treated by the participants in that system. And it's not so much it's either one or the other. Uh, Joe, there is a lot of uh, talking about uh, organizations made of uh, uh, cellular structures, let's say. You know? So, for example, we are uh, now working with uh, this Chinese uh, company called Hire that is uh, made of 4,000 micro-enterprises. There's another company in the Netherlands which is uh, very famous uh, in terms of how they structure it. It's an organization that provides care services called Bardsorg, uh, that it's organized in teams of 12 people uh, that to some extent all replicated the same processes and are uh, you know, very much adaptive to the local context. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but... At the same time, we are witnessing an emerging pattern in uh, successful uh, organizations that are, are more adaptive to the world that we are living, which is this pattern of, uh, let's say, architecting. So there are often some leaders in the organization that to some extent uh, provide an architectural uh, the direction to the to the, to the to the system to the organization. I, I was uh, curious to see how this resonates uh, uh, with your considerations that you often uh, uh, make about uh, this idea of uh, architecting the whole system. You know? mm -hmm. So, uh, so w w what do you what can you say about that? Well, that's a, that's an interesting term um, to speak directly to to what you're talking about. I think I need to know more about. How, what the architect um, is supposed to do and, and how they actually interact with the system. But as, as a general point, I mean, I think architecture is actually a really fertile place to think about the intersection of what we usually consider as kind of um, 
top-down design processes and, and more living bottom-up evolutionary processes, right? So w- when we go to design things, we tend to have an intention about what we want, um, what we want to achieve, how it might look. Um, and when we think about nature and how it evolves, the, the general idea is there's no one deciding those things. Um, they're just kind of happening in the world and uh, the forces that are, are already present within the world or that those systems generate um, kind of weed through possible, you know, spaces of possibilities and, and things that um, have some kind of properties that make them persistent um, go on in time and things that don't indeed don't. Um, so, so architecture, I, I, I'm digressing a little bit, but the architecture is such an interesting and fertile ground um, because of that intersection. And, and you know, um, I'm a really uh, big fan of uh, Christopher Alexander, um, who is by specialty an architect um, and sort of beyond that, his, his practices and writings on his practices um, and the kind of conceptual frameworks and theories that go along with that um, span into sort of systems design philosophy broadly and, and even just sort of complex systems theory broadly. Um, so I think one of the things that we're trying uh, collectively to kind of grapple with right now is what does it mean to grow a system intentionally? So how do I um, structure the environment, structure the constraints, um, set conditions such that a living or a sort of organic system can can grow and develop in a direction that... Um, we as people with values deem as useful, helpful, value-adding, et cetera. So the, the challenge now is, is to um, not see that, that when there's a human agents or even architects so-called in the systems, that it's the role of that person or those people is still to facilitate the organic unfolding of the system and not to... Um, impose too many directives on it um, and, and sort of how do we set those constraints? Who sets them at what level? Um, why those constraints and not others? And, and it's important to think in constraints because the possibility space is so large that um, we're really s- stealing from possible uh, kind of aha moments and eureka moments among individuals, among groups. Um, if we don't allow the system to move into configurations that no single person imagined. Um, so, so what the architect does to me is of the utmost importance in, in any system that um, asks for an architect or, or sort of an architectural process. I know that you have been talking quite a lot about this precautionary principle. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to what you were saying now, you know, like the conditions that we set for growing the systems intentionally. So I was wondering if maybe you can talk a little bit about that and also if you see that there are other principles that could facilitate this kind of work. Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe also in, in relationship with the role of the architect and also what are the principles maybe that the architects should uh, keep in mind when they try to de- design these uh, organic systems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So precautionary principle, that's an interesting place to go from here. So Really, the precautionary principle is about uh, large-scale and systemic risk. Um, so w- w- what I was mentioning was the need to place only constraints and rather than, than directives as much as possible uh, so the system can explore the possibility space. Um, the, one of the places that in large-scale systems we need to place constraints are um, in places and in ways that prevent um, cascading systemic risk from, from invading the entirety of the system, whatever the system of interest might be. So um, the balance for, for allowing a system to um, persist and explore and evolve exists in cutting the, the biggest, uh, most ruinous downside risks, making those where your constraints are placed, and then allowing the system to explore otherwise. So, so you kind of want to be aggressive in terms of local risk-taking and, and local experimentation um, while being paranoid, essentially, uh, if you want to use the term, at for the most systemic, the most widespread and ruinous type of risks for the whole system. So a, a lot of times discussion of the precautionary principle gets mired down in that um, 
sort of accusation that, oh, well, if we don't take any risks, we can't make any progress, we can't do anything new. And no, that's that's actually not the case at all. It has to do with the the manner in which you take risks of doing new things, of, of trying new uh, state spaces out, of, of organizing things differently. So, and this, this connects to the other theme that I know that um, you guys were wanting to discuss about localism. So there's a precautionary principle, and then there are principles around structuring things in a local manner. So um, having a preference essentially for connections that are local in nature, whether that's in physical space, which uh, as we talk about it often, that's, that's a discussion because physical space um, sort of precedes so many other types of interactions and, and sets the conditions for a high density of, of high fidelity interactions. Or, or sometimes um, localism can be in a more abstract space like we see in Twitter, um, you know, we interact on Twitter, we follow each other, and there's all these little um, sort of clicks and sub-tribes and kind of topic uh, groups that have emerged that are kind of localist in nature, not in space, but in a, a sort of conversation space. Um, so a localist principle, or, or for instance, a very relevant principle of, of subsidiarity says whatever the function of a, whether it's a governing body or part of an organization or a function of an organization um, the best scale at which to, to serve some function is the smallest scale at which it's possible to do so. And so then you end up with, with kind of a redundancy of function, um, some v- variety on the forms um, and, and the functional con- uh, you know, consequences of those forms. Um, so, so precautionary principles sort of cut your systemic downside, an approach to cutting the systemic downside without um, eliminating the, the evolutionary and exploratory upside is by um, bounding things essentially locally and, and allowing a lot of variety and exploration at, the, at those local smaller scales. Um, and so that when failure happens, which of course it does, um, you're, you're learning from that failure or you're at least surviving it um, system-wide. And so, so that is another sort of intersection of, of many themes um, cautionary principle and localism, subsidiarity, and, and how you think about um, system structure. Very interesting, Joe. Uh, that's a reflection that I would like to offer. There's a lot of talking about uh, organizations that are optimized for uh, resilience in uh, changing times. You know, so for example, a lot of people say, you know, when you if you ever your if your organization is placing a lot of bets, or maybe if your organization is structured a little bit like, like a network of uh, loosely coupled units, it's going to re- respond to the changes and be more adaptive, you know, in, in the 21st century that is characterized by, uh, I would say, uh, in generally a much higher level of uncertainty. We didn't speak about the coronavirus yet, but uh, uh, this is in the background, mm-hmm. let's say, of the conversation. Sure. So so th- my point, uh, c- coming back to the question of localism that I find really important, um, is there a, uh, some kind of difference in just applying this uh, principle of being loosely coupled and networked in nature and doing the extra mile of saying uh, that this loosely coupled unit also need to be embedded in uh, the landscape and in the community? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, so what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, this, this, for me, this question goes beyond uh, sort of organizational considerations that most modern day organizations are thinking about. Um, nevertheless, when you look at the multiple crises uh, we face all across the globe and, and, and the similar and different challenges that people are facing, um, th- there's clearly a disconnect for most people I think I'll venture to say between their sort of um, career self and, and, and the communities that they either are or not a part of. Um, and, and, you know, this, this really goes back to some of the core themes of, of complexity. You know, what are those, um, you know, emergence more is different or, or like bigger is different. So, so the importance of scale, um, how, how changes of scale are, are almost necessarily changes of quality, not merely quantity. Um, so when you look at how organizations have scaled over the past, let's just say since the Industrial Revolution, where we've gone since then, there's been a sort of increasing disconnect between um, human communities and, and the organizations that we participate in. 
So th this, this goes in many ways back to our values. This is not just necessarily a business question. Um, the question is, do we value um, human community? And if we do, um, it, is there a resolution to the tension that we're seeing now between um, business organizations and, and life lived um, in a context I know for myself, I can say that you can you can certainly see in the U.S. Um, in many places the, the lack of community and um, how the, the sort of raw economic variables that we think about um, and we look at in, in sort of the context of business um, they 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 are not good indicators of how people are doing. Um, you know, if people if they're doing really bad, then people might be doing really bad. The economy is hurting, and all of that, of course. But just because the economic metrics are are rosy, is not a good indicator of sort of the health of, of human communities. Um, so, and, and these things are not completely disconnected because, you know, as we scale organizations, um, th there's more and more negative externalities that manifest that aren't represented in market prices, the, the causes become diffused and, and hard to um, track down long causal chains, supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we have all these externalities that, that we're facing now. And I think one of those major externalities that has been underappreciated is the way that um, business organizations can, can kind of undercut the, their foundation, um, which is sort of the soil that is community and, and, and sort of humans thriving. So I don't know if that's that's the direction you're imagining like going in, but that that's sort of how I see it. No, to totally. You know, the, the, the question of, I think, uh, you know, we are searching since a while now to try to, uh, to understand uh, the connection between a feeling that we have, which is uh, this uh, intuitive feeling and, and, you know, just not just intuitive, but also through the conversations that we had, this intuitive feeling that we need to, you know, we are witnessing a transition between an age of uh, completely disentangled organizations and organizational theory that is just focused on producing customer experiences, let's say, without uh, taking into account any externality of the business. And, uh, to, you know, towards a new age of organizational thinking that seems like to be uh, much more about um, health, uh, mm -hmm. so, so this idea of health as a driving principle of our organizational efforts, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, we feel like that in this transition we need to have, we, we are going to see new constituents coming up and we're going to see uh, different priorities. But maybe the missing point that we have uh, so far is the idea of how this transition is going to happen. And I think that you offer, to some extent, some uh, uh, interesting point of view, which is this idea that organization ends up, uh, uh, sorry, organizations end up in undercutting the system that they are embedded in. And, and uh, also another podcast that we, we recorded a few weeks ago with another guest, Indy Johar, uh, he made this point that uh, to some extent uh, at a global level now we, have, we are now witnessing and we are now experiencing this, this idea of uh, small, small world dynamics. Mm -hmm. Like every people now feel like they are interconnected, not because, uh, you know, just the coronavirus, for example, have uh, created this feeling that we are all in the same context to some extent, and is to some extent also pushing a, a power shift, you know, a, a beyond, uh, let's say, from the traditional organization into more the more into the household and the community. Mm -hmm. um, so, so my question for you would be: How do you feel like, in terms of dynamics of complex systems, that these uh, complex system that is uh, humanity uh, and the human society may adapt to these new ideas? Mm -hmm. uh, how this transition could happen? Okay, so I mean, I think this transition is, is happening, you know, under our feet right now. Um, the, the broad theme that's defining our transition right now is that of decentralization. And so you're mentioning that, that small world network. So this is the idea that um, as you take a, say, a spatial system, imagine a grid of, of little nodes that are connected to their neighbors and those neighbors connect to the neighbors. So it's, it's, like a, it's like the globe before you could fly in a plane. Um, so it took a lot of hops 
to get from one side of the globe, say, to the other. You couldn't just jump jump to the other side. Well, it turns out that when you start adding long-range connections in to that system, not just those short-range local ones, very quickly, every node in that system becomes only a handful of hops away from any other node. So effectively, um, it shrinks the space um, in, in a very literal way. So when you think in sort of topology of the space, it's, it becomes everything very close together. Um, these are indeed the conditions that make uh, pandemics, for instance, so likely. Not just this one, more to occur. And, you know, pandemics occurred even even before we had this kind of interconnection. So um, that's not to say that they're normal or that we should, um, you know, allow them to unfold. Um, but we should expect them as long as we want to be interconnected like this and expect them to be very rapid and very severe. And um, just frankly, if we don't get our act together on that, that's that's going to turn out really bad because um, this situation is, is ugly enough and um, a virus could be much worse and travel much faster and all of that. So um, we need to figure that out. Um, so, so returning to the point, um, the theme that we're experiencing is decentralization and, and it's, we're not experiencing it because it's a mimetic trend that happened to be happening or sort of a fad or a trend or, um, something like that. It's not a fashion. It's the fact that we have become so interconnected has uh, given rise to many very large scale forces that are cascading around the globe all the time in, in different media and different ways with different interactions. We, we don't have any means and nor hope of having means of being able to observe all of those cascades and track them and, and, and sort of um, respond to them in some sort of control theoretic manner or something. It's just too much. Um, so what's happening in response to that are that systems are naturally decentralizing in order to uh, sustain themselves because there's too much happening at large scales um, in, to, to respond to. So two things happen when systems decentralize. One, because we are the source of those large scale forces as we decentralize, the forces themselves start scaling down uh, and become more manageable. Moreover, um, when the sort of control unit of any given, you know, whether it's a societal unit or something like that, the, the control mechanisms of, of a unit um, become able to be tuned into what's locally um, relevant and tune out everything that's not relevant. Whereas if you have some broad, say, policymaking scheme, some widespread scheme, um, these are necessarily insensitive to the, to the local variations and things. Um, so decentralization is the theme. Um, it's going to, one of the things we can count on with all of this is that there are surprises left um, always ahead. So, you know, so much of, of, of looking at things in terms of, of complex systems is really um, developing a humility around what can we really predict? What, what can we really see coming in the future? And given that, we know actually we can't say much about um, where a system is headed, uh, so large, so complex, so many interactions. What are the strategies and tactics we can adopt to, to do the best we can under those conditions? Um, and it just so happens that as the, the scale of forces scale up, as um, the complexity and the challenges rise, that um, decentralized systems are, are just fair and better. Um, so we'll keep going that way for a while. I have no idea to what degree um, it will persist, but I think that this really, you know, rising awareness and interest in this word that that's being tossed around localism um, is really a sign of, of a lot of people starting to become more aware of that kind of a dynamic, that the dynamic is not necessarily in sort of philosophy or a particular political system, left or right, liberal, conservative. It's really this, variable that's been missing from all of those conversations for a while, um, and that is the scale of the system and, and the degree of centralization and decentralization in the system. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, to, to, to try to also put together pieces for our listeners, as I understand, you, you, some, to some extent you mean, you know, basically the centralization that we have been witnessing is introducing so many risk factors that uh, as an answer, uh, we will, to some extent, need to decentralize, and uh, uh, this decentralization, which will 
deflate these forces that, uh, to some extent, generate these uh, existential ris risks. And uh, on the other hand, they will completely transform the salience landscape let's say you know for for the for the communities and for the organizations themselves so so the relevance will change and we're going to reprioritize as an effect of this decentralization uh, did, did i capture more or less a couple of the most important ideas yeah absolutely and i like that i like that metaphor of deflation right it's it's there's these large scale cascades that are going on all the time now and um Decentralization is one of the means of, of building those down a bit, making them not so severe, not so large scale. Absolutely. That's a very powerful insight. Thanks very much, Joe. Sure. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, I just wanted to also jump in with a, with a small uh, question or provocation. In when you talk about localisms, to some ears, it can also sound as a risk in the current political system. So what we certainly what you you are not referring to and what we don't want is that um, you know there are local politicians who might have a sort of a a short term uh, thinking in terms of uh, voting cycles and so on and so how do you see that decentralization in the existing institutions that we have interplaying with this type of decentralization which is Uh, from what I understand, much more organic and much more coming from the bottom up. Because at some time, at some point, in the local scale, they will they will meet each other. Mm -hmm. So I mean, so how does a system that is centralized today become less centralized in the future? You know, the the unfortunate truth is that one of the ways is by the big system breaking, and that's never that can never be considered a good thing in and of itself because of all the human suffering that entails. Um, But maybe there's another way, you know, in the U.S., we were formed to be really a, a, a federal system. So federated um, the states, the 50 states acting semi-autonomously, making a lot of decisions locally on their own. So here in the U.S. and, and, and lower in scale as well, counties and cities. So um, over the years, we've become more centralized, which is, is one of the sort of dynamics we see is that kind of uh, left to their own devices without any mechanisms in place to, to um, prevent over-centralization, it can and does happen. But can we devolve um, back into some of our, our smaller units, um, a lot of the, the powers and whatnot, without a complete collapse of the system? I hope so. I really hope so. Um, but it, it's, it's not clear. And I don't think it's really, truly clear to anyone. Um, and So, and when you say the, you know, you mentioned you see localism as potentially a risk. Could, could you say more on that? Yeah, I mean that in the sense of uh, if we know that we have this huge systemic risk sort of hanging over our heads. And I just see that what would be the risk if people start to close in themselves in sort of gated communities and mm. we would see other types of externalities like mm -hmm. social exclusions, particularly, you know, if if the privileged classes are able to sort of uh, profit from from the localism in that sense, or political leaders at local level might, um, you know, also profit from that sense of we need to go back to local and you, you, you don't look further than sort of your, um, your really local constituency in terms of voters and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Right. So a um, couple thoughts on that. One is that you indeed, uh, at the local scales, still have risk of, for instance, someone with, say, a dictatorial uh, attitude coming into power, and then all of a sudden your town is is run by some some jerk who thinks that he should control every detail of everything or something like that, and um, that is a risk. Um, the difference with something like that is today we 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 bear those risks on very very large scales. So think of China, say scale of a billion people, um, one person say making a decision for all of them. And, and so with respect to that, yes, there are risks, um, but the more you can make risks uh, localized, actually the fewer people they will affect. And, and, and also, in, you know, we we're discussing these cascade potentials when some local system is pathological, sort of what are the what are the scale of the forces it generates into the, the external side of the system? You know, something, something like a, a 
billion plus person country or even 500 million, 300 million, like the US, whatever it is, those risks of, of bad decisions become very much exacerbated when the, when the systems are that large. Um, so, so it's not, it's not a way of eliminating risk. It's a way of sort of ch- changing the, from, you know, in terms of probability, kind of the tail behavior of the risks. So you thin out the tails. Um, there are indeed bad, bad events and bad outcomes still, but they are more independently distributed and, um, scale up less pathologically. Yeah. I mean, maybe Joe, to, to some extent, I want to, uh, pick it back on this conversation very quickly before moving to another topic that I would like to explore with you. Um, you know, I was, I was listening to, uh, you know, a, a podcast a few days ago from Balaji Srinivasan, and, uh, he was talking about these, uh, um, Com, you know, kind of comparing these two ideas, no? this idea of uh, rationalism and nationalism, oh. and making a, a more general point between, you know, in, in terms of friction between this idea of uh, more general, let's say, scientific uh, uh, understanding and uh, a more tribal, uh, a more, uh, let's say, um, to some extent, uh, you know, not national, ne- you know, he wasn't talking about nationalism just from the geographic perspective, but was more about this idea that uh, local truths, you know, local uh-huh. uh, points of view versus more universal points of view. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the interesting uh, questions that we, we are debating is really about uh, this idea that it looks like uh, the age of uh, universal uh, 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 scientific or technological understanding of things to some extent is uh, showing uh, limits uh, but to uh, from another point of view uh, we are uh, we are you know to some extent also uh, aware that a certain level of coherence uh, uh, it's uh, uh, still uh, needed uh, you, you also mentioned you know a few minutes uh, before no you said uh, I don't know to to what, to what extent, you know, this pure localist uh, alternative can, to some extent, grant, grant the coherence that is needed, uh, um, you know, in this transition, you know, between the traditional industrial complex and what was coming up in the post-industrial age. So do you have an idea of, of how these two uh, epistemic approaches, uh, these two layers of the conversation can coexist uh, um, or uh, maybe they're going to clash to some extent one with each other well of course we do witness them clash and that that is clear um as far as how can they they potentially synergize how can they um be part of a a whole that's not sort of at odds with itself well i think for one there's a clear um self-evident truth that the more people that you need to agree on something then the fewer things that you must have them be forced into agreeing on. So um, as we talk about sort of coherence, it's coherence of what, of what variables, of what parameters. Um, so I think that sort of the, the place that we're able to cohere at large scales are things like um, founding values or sort of axiomatic values. So that's why you see that, that for instance, a large nation like the U.S. has been able to kind of hang together as a unit for so long because we had a... Um, core set of, of kind of foundational values that we return to, despite the other differences that we had. So for one thing, um, you know, I, I like Nassim Taleb's critique on the idea of nationalism. And there, there's a lot of, you know, conflation of terms here. And what do we mean by this term and that term? And that person means one thing, that person means something else. But I like his critique of nationalism in when nationalism is used in the sense of a single scale that kind of absorbs all the others. So there's sort of a, a one um, important scale of the system and all the other scales uh, below and above exist to, to serve that scale. Like, okay, the nation is the important scale. But when we're talking about localism, we're really talking about multi-scale structure. So localism respects the individual because that is the most local unit of the the social system. And then you have the family and maybe the local community and town or city. Um, And then you have larger scale structures, um, regional structures that that, um, cohere on some variables and not others. Um, And so 
once again, in return to this idea of subsidiarity, it, the idea isn't that there's one, you know, that everyone needs to do everything at the village scale and the village scale only, but rather that what is local depends on the kind of challenge you're facing. Um, so, in this, and this can scale up to, to um, global scale issues like climate change. Um, so what are the appropriate scales at which to govern for climate change? Well, I mean, I think one of the running assumptions that you see a lot is that, well, for a global scale sort of force, you need a uh, global um, governing body. But maybe it's not the case. Maybe we just need, um, I, I don't know, just, just making this up, but 20 kind of geographic units that come together and find consensus and there's no one single kind of head of or something. But, but be that as it may, you know, the, the problem that the system faces should dictate the scale at which it's, it's confronted. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to suggest, and I think this does get lost in conversation sometimes, that localism means that only my neighborhood. No, it, mean, it means that your neighborhood can probably make a lot of decisions that it's not making now that are getting made at scales much larger than are, than are necessary, much more centralized than are necessary to, to deal with the challenges. So it's, and it's not only that it's not necessary to do them at that larger scale, but you start um, getting you know, what you might call diseconomies of scale. Um, where, where you're missing the ability to, to respond locally to, to the local relevant variations. Great points. I, I think you also hand me the, uh, the, 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 let's say, the direction for the next topic of conversation that I wanted to, to quickly discuss with you. So you, you spoke about this idea of multi-scale variety in complex systems, and you ended up also this conversation, the last, the last bit, uh, talking about, uh, you know, these uh, overgrown, let's say, uh, hierarchical systems that uh, uh, we have been growing in the last uh, century, let's say, you know, for example. And uh, uh, the question I think I would like to explore with you is uh, is, is the following. So, so we have developed, uh, uh, I would say, uh, an organizational theory and a business model theory, an idea of, uh, um, you know, creating value in society, especially in the late last 10, 10, 15, 20 years, that is largely based on this idea of centralizing everything, you know, because you can, you can achieve the network effects, you know, this idea that uh, you need to, to create this centralized system so you, you can scale up. And uh, instead, uh, and, and to some extent, I think this also in, in infused in people this idea that only centralized systems can achieve a certain kind of performance, can achieve a certain kind of efficacy in you know, generating, generating value or generating services or generating whatever we need as societies evolves. Um, so, so my question for you would be, how do we develop a new theory of systems that scale across uh, uh, through different lenses? Uh, and and uh, can you just, you know, for example, explore how multi-scale variety in complex systems can still provide, you know, these kind of benefits uh, uh, that are, are related normally with, uh, you know, for example, sharing the same language or sharing the same uh, um, protocols, you know, in, in, in the exchanges and, and generating at the end of the day network effects without centralizations. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So, so you, we were talking about coherence before and, and it's clear that there's, you know, at least um, maybe absolutely two routes to coherence. So, so where we think of coherence as a lot of, of um, differentiating, differentiable, in, not, not in the calculus sense, but that you can differentiate multiple units doing the same thing in some sense. That's a coherent system where they're all doing the same thing. Um, this could be generated by a system being centralized. So there's some command center that sends out, you know, uh, go left, go right, you know, up, down, and all of the, the units follow that command and that, then you achieve coherence. Another way is, is by cascades through a system um, achieving some coherence. So you imagine all of the mag, you know, you know, the magnetic poles of, of particular molecules and atoms co-align in the same direction by virtue of, of the interactions among them locally. So, so you also achieve coherence, but in a much different route, the sort of local bottom-up route. So multi-scale variety, how, how does that fit into this? So when, when you're facing a complex environment, um, as 
human organizations are, as living systems are in, in, in the, the setting of, of ecologies, um, you have to respond to forces at different scales. So uh, a nice way of thinking about this is to think about a single, like a human body. Um, we have a skeletal muscular system uh, with which we can um, generate and respond to forces at sort of a Newtonian macroscopic scale. You know, you can climb the tree or throw the stone, um, things like that with, with your muscles and your skeleton. We have other systems though too, like for instance, we have the immune system. Now this is operating at a much different scale. This is dealing with, with um, molecular, sort of complex molecular uh, perturbations and, and challenges. So that's, that's kind of a way of starting to think about the prototype of a multi, multi-scale variety in a system and what it does for a system that, that's trying to achieve something. If, say, return to the example of the human body, if you don't have the immune system, then you can't respond to the molecular environment or the, the, or the microbiological environment. If you don't have a musculoskeletal system, then you can't respond to the, the kind of Newtonian environment. So indeed, um, a- any organization uh, th- that's seeking to persist has to, is actually um, by mathematical necessity, something called the, the law of requisite variety, must respond to these different challenges at different scales. Um, so, so the question is, how, how do we enable a system to discover those natural scales of, of behavior that it needs to operate on um, and, and um, to have enough redundancy and, and independence of behavior on one hand to deal with sort of small scale, fine grain complexity, things that change uh, rapidly in a local environment that has to be responded to and the kind of large scale forces that the system needs. And how can we make as many of those large scale forces of, of the variety that um, emerge at a bottom up coherence? So a lot of consensus among the, the players of the system, the agents of the system, as opposed to a, a direct or directive from a top-down central commander, um, because even even in the case where we need large-scale coherence, um, there's many reasons that you would prefer for those forces to come um, at a sort of a bottom-up cascade as opposed to a, a, a top-down directive. Um, not least of which because of the um, the long-term health of the system. You mentioned health before in um, behaviors that that are consistent at both of those scales. So. Um, behaviors that the, the uh, micro component systems are comfortable with and happy to perform and that benefit the larger scale collective system. Generally, we turn to um, centralized directives when we feel we don't have a good way of, of achieving things, coherence otherwise. Yeah. So coming back to the question of organizing, then do you, uh, do you see that current organizing maybe uh, should be... Um, more ambitious in terms of uh, trying to achieve this consent, this bottom-up consensus uh, at higher scales. So I'm thinking about, for example, uh, you know, collaboration and integration between organizations that typically now we see them as com- uh, competitive. Uh, so this idea that maybe to really achieve uh, more resilient, more sustainable, more uh, organic organizing uh, uh, it's it's arrived the time that we start to go beyond this idea of com, com, uh, competitive organizations and 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 think more to you know organizations that can uh, find a coherence you know a bottom up coherence between each other uh, at a higher scale. Right. So so I mean I think we have to just start thinking about uh, competition and cooperation as things that work in tandem that are dynamic that vary over time vary over scale. Um, from, I, I want to say it's from permaculture. There's this term, it's a little clunky, but coopetition, which is intended to capture this kind of a dynamic. So, um, competition does indeed allow systems to, um, evolve, um, discover, um, points of uniqueness and sharpen those points and, and find niches and, uh, develop and um, exploit those niches and and become and that in turn becomes new niches for for other systems so so I do think that there is a proper and appropriate role for competition um, but I do think that we also need to be thinking in these terms where um, it's not an sort of 
all versus all um, sort of last man standing dynamic that we want. We want something that uh, indeed where the both the cooperation and the competition among the participants generates healthy ecosystems for which the the game, so to speak, can go on and beyond and play more and, and new possibilities can be explored. So um, I think probably in either direction, um, both cooperation and competition could be a vice or a virtue um, if, if it becomes ideological on either pole. Um, but yeah, I think we, we need to think about the, that interplay and, and how we um, enable new cooperative forms to emerge and, and what our current um, policy and regulatory structures are that, that might make that difficult to happen. And, and how can we, how can we foster that? Because certainly um, organizations um, compete within the variables that they, they seek to, to kind of um, produce value on and, but indeed um, can, can benefit from various kinds of partnerships and relationships with uh Things that do that, that are complementary organizations that are complementary in, in what they do. It may be these new fact, new risk factors, and uh, this uh, this drive for for health that maybe is generating the opportunity for us to to rethink competition into uh, competition at you know new scales. You know, yeah. that maybe this is the the opportunity. So, Joe, as we enter the last part of the conversation, I would like to ask you. Uh, um, to, to explore with you a final point that uh, I think is the point of, uh, um, you know, the role of uh, putting modernity mm -hmm. into question to some extent. And I know that you are a big uh, proponent of uh, Wendell Berry's work, and I thank you for, uh, you know, pointing me out to, to his work, and it was amazing for, uh, for, him, for me to discover this. Uh, so I would like to ask you a, a reflection as we close this conversation a little bit on uh, the role of culture and the clash between culture and modernity and uh, specialization that, uh, uh, that I think we are finally uh, living through uh, as we uh, you know, encounter problems such as this pandemic or um, also the technological disruptions that uh, they generate uh, Uh, these uh, existential risks that we are living, including climate change or or environmental degradation and so on. So, so to some extent, uh, what is your perception? What is your your point of view on uh, overcoming modernity? Uh, you know, what kind of uh, insights can we find in the world of uh, uh, Barry or other uh, proponents of a different relationship between technology? expectations from, the, from, 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 from society, our role as active producers, active stewards, as you said, of, of culture, not just of, uh, uh, you know, resources or, or technologies. Okay, so, so, so modernity. I mean, uh, big word that we, we, we throw a lot into, or at least I do, um, generally as a punching bag. Um, what, what is the theme of modernity? It's, it's generally this... Um, this triumph of, of, of top-down design and control that um, what we really should and can do is imagine the world as it ought to be, um, essentially as a perfect machine, and then go out and, and structure the world such that it conforms to that, what we imagined, the, the, the model we built. You know, um, you see a lot, something you see over and over is, is um, this term blueprint uh, where people talk about with genetics and DNA. And it's a great example of, of the way we think about things and the sort of way modernity conceptualizes things that we think of, that anybody thinks of DNA as a, a quote unquote blueprint. You know, a blueprint is a drawing. It's a set of uh, technical drawings um, where you try to bring, you know, some kind of structure, say a house into, into being by making uh, reality fit that uh, original representation as, as closely as possible, um, you know, moving the pieces into the place. Uh, so, so modernity is sort of that vision of, of the world that way. And, you know, you end up with, um, for that reason, you end up a lot of, for instance, like Euclidean geometry and architecture. So, so, you know, big box is the celebrated architectural feat or a strange triangle pointing in a arbitrary direction. Um, and you lose that, 
you know, multi-scale fractal richness that, for instance, used to come with architecture. Like, where did that go? Um, and why don't we see it in modern buildings? So modernity is, is sort of that dynamic writ large from my perspective. Um, Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is, is, is a wonderful author. And I'm, I'm also very thankful for having run into him. So I'm glad that you enjoyed uh, what, what you read. Um, you know, one of the things that he writes a lot about is, is the way that the farm, not, not just uh, farming didn't just change when it became mechanized. There was an entire class of, in this case, say Americans, but it's, of course, it's a global phenomenon, um, entire class of Americans that um, whose way of life disappeared along with the mechanization of farming. So there's all these problems with, with overly mechanized farming, uh, the way it depletes uh, resources rather than enriching them, and all these things that, that um, many people discuss. But there's also um, the cultural aspect of, okay, a, a, a way of life is, is disappearing and, and the people are um, having to adapt. So, you know, if there's all of a sudden 90% fewer farm jobs, okay, well, I'm going to move to the city and uh, change what I'm doing. And that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but we need to recognize that that um, triggers a cascade that, that, that sort of continues and continues and rolls and rolls. Um, and when you, when you make decisions like that, and, and if they are indeed decisions that were based on bad assumptions, like bad assumptions about um, the conditions under which agriculture um, can be a sort of uh, productive enterprise w- without, with even positive externalities, never mind without negative externalities, something that could that could benefit um, the systems that it's embedded in. You know, it, it becomes hard to reverse decisions like that. So there's a modernity has done a lot of that to all kinds of culture and culture is really the, the buildup and the accretion of, of this collective know-how. And it's not a process that can really be reversed all that much. Um, there's some lingering memory that happens and after a couple of generations, it's gone. And I think that in modernity, we've, we've overestimated the amount to which we could deal with uh, the world in a purely rational way and and underestimated the amount that we rely on practices and know-how that we've conserved many times without even realizing that we've done it. It's sort of the way you get up and walk around. Um, You don't think about how you do it. And in fact, if if you thought about how you do it, it would make it awkward and and less functional. Um, So, so we've done a bit of that modernity. We forced ourselves to forget what we've been doing, what we've known how to do. And now we, need to figure out, well, how do we, if, it, if, it, if uh, the thesis that I'm proposing is correct, that um, these things that we've lost actually had a lot of functional value um, that in the long run we'll need to regain, how do we start approaching that consciously? Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the virtues of, of localism is that in a system, say an economy and a governance system that, that prioritizes and favors the local interactions, the local producers, the, you get this very high density of connections and, and even circular flows inside of these dense networks um, that can manifest. And, and you have some hope at, at sort of the human scale of detecting what's actually going on in that system and responding and adapting to it, learning from it over time accruing experience, um, accruing experience that might be particular to a very local context, um, but is nonetheless, uh, you know, very valuable in that context. And so, you know, this goes back to where we really began our discussion, um, talking about the way organization has kind of um, scaled up to the degree where it's, where it begins to disconnect from community, where they become these very distinct kinds of things and where the community might be lost altogether. Um, so from my perspective, the, the real hope of, of, of a localist mindset is, um, the return and the regrowth and the evolution of novel cultures. And, and, and with respect to this idea of multi-scale variety, you know, if we're all, if there's two relevant scales, sort of the individual and then the, the global human system, there's no place in that vision for a richness of a variety of cultures. Um, culture is a collective phenomenon, but those, those, for those patterns to be rich at the scale of the collective proper, um, 
there, there needs to be this kind of uh, intermediate scales and, and this not sort of um, fully globalized flows of all information and, and, and for lack of a better term, frankly, cultural practice. Um, and you mentioned the idea of, of becoming producers and, 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 you know, at the global scale, we've started going into the direction where we have these global centralized producers like, like China um, and we stop producing, say, in the West, we start just consuming. And I think that, you know, the coronavirus situation that we're living through right now is waking a lot of people up to that fact um, as we look at the, the fragility of, of some of the global supply chains um, and the way they get entangled into geopolitics and all sorts of nasty stuff like that. It's becoming more conscious that, that when we gave up um, mindsets as producers as as human small scale system human agents um we lost something with that or we turned into pure consumers and, and just to close uh, how is your experience of uh, looking at uh, how we are you know our society is transforming what is your learning from the perspective of your homestead and how do you look at organizing from where you are uh, embedded now, you know, from your homestead? How do you, what do you think about when you think about how do we organize in this future? You know, what I've been doing is trying to build relationships around me. There's some people who do small-scale farming in my small town, um, in the town surrounding. There, there's quite a few more. It's really been to take those initial steps. I, I didn't grow up in uh, an environment that valued highly sort of lo the local aspects of living. It was indeed a very modernistic um, way I grew up. And so for me, a lot of those initial steps have, have been the very simple ones of going and talking to people who have been in place here for a while, helping them out, getting help from them, um, just literally engaging folks and um, remaining acutely aware of those opportunities as they come up for, for the value of the local to assert itself. I know around me, um, the small scale producers have in, in, in the recent months experienced like a huge surge in demand. And it's not only because folks are, um, or supply chains are brittle or something. It's, it's that folks are really waking up to the fact that I don't want to necessarily go to the centralized store um, and buy the thing that's that's from miles away, thousands of miles away, and shipped here. There's, I, I can go to my local farm store direct to my farmer. No, no middleman, no intermediary. Spend the same amount of money, get a product with quality of you know. I wouldn't even want to try to quantify because it's not really a ten times, hundred times. It's it's qualitatively different. Um, I just see that people waking up around me to that right now. So I, I'm trying to. Um, Stay a part of that. Stay a part of that as far as the marketplace here on our homestead. We've really focused on um, starting to get our own um, needs subsidized. I would say, um, you know, chickens and vegetable garden, um, and we'll be moving into meat birds hopefully this year. Um, have gone to local farms and participated in um, processing of birds. So processing is a polite word for for slaughter. Um, and so we're, we're gaining experiences um, that, that we know we need in order to be able to not only um, be more self-sufficient, but also more helpful to our local community. So it's really nothing glamorous, um, nothing sort of global in scale, but very much localized and, and, and building the relationships here. Joe, it feels uh, great. And uh, I mean, it was an amazing conversation for us. Uh, I think I'm going to release into this like a two or three times and, and take notes because there are so many insights that I want to integrate. Um, uh, Stine, I don't know if you have something to add. Otherwise, uh, I think we can, we can close the conversation. No, uh, thank you so much. I think, uh, again, it was very eye-opening. I think I learned also many things and uh, especially on this like devolving back into smaller units that it's both bottom up and and like going back from something that has somehow been centralized i think that was a really key takeaway for me thank you very much joe where, where can our listeners keep up with your work um well, well first thank you both for uh, the really nice conversation i i really appreciate it. i know i was um 
I was a bit hard to get a hold of. I've had a kind of a crazy time lately, but um, I, I thank you for your patience and I really enjoyed it. Um, so probably the best place to get a hold of me is on Twitter. That's certainly where I'm the most active. The Twitter handle is Normonics, N-O-R-M-O-N-I-C-S. You can also email me at joe.w.norman at gmail.com or um, I have a website up too that I update uh, infrequently, but I do update it, jwnorman.com. Joe, thanks very much. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Simone. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music. <laughs>